everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Unwise Girls. I'm your host, Jacqueline. And I'm your other host, Jane. And we're your favorite podcast, all about the books of Rick Riordan. Today, we're continuing The Mark of Athena. How are you doing today, Jane? Oh, I'm I'm doing just fine, thank you. I've, I've, I've got a, a brand new diecast spaceship to play with while we're recording. The Enterprise from the 2009 Star Trek movie. The one which looks like a fucking Apple store. I have you ever been in an Apple store? Unfortunately. I went to one for the first time recently and it was maybe the scariest thing I've ever experienced. <laughs> Just the fucking like empty room, basically. It's an empty room and if you like like knock something over, you have to pay like thousands of dollars to replace this piece of shit. Yeah. Yeah. Oh god. The horrible places. How are you, Jacqueline? I'm doing okay. I'm I'm going into classic Jacqueline mode today and recording mm. from my bed. I, I've actually, now that I'm the one who's editing, I've taken the courtesy to actually grab my microphone. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad that in some cases you will do that. It's it's shrimply. Are you okay? I'm not. In my, I'm not in the zone like I usually do. I, <laughs> <laughs> You're a little bit frazzled. You're a little bit silly today. I'm a, I'm feeling a little silly today. Do you want me to do the summaries and you can you can compose yourself? Uh, Jane, I but most of all, what I am is excited for you to summarize these fucking chapters. Damn, she's going to take out what I said. Huh? Would you? Do you want to go ahead? <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. Okay. Chapter forty-five. Percy. Percy, Jason, and Piper finally arrive in the giant's lair. It's the same as Percy remembers from his dreams. A weird backstage area full of caged animals and shitty props, all for the giant's big party that will destroy Rome and completely one-up Dionysus, for sure. Nico's jar is also in the room, and the three demigods rush it, hoping to rescue him before this obvious trap can be set off. Unfortunately, the obvious trap is set off, and Ephialtes makes his grand entrance, quickly followed by Otis, who is for once not wearing the same thing as his brother. Instead... Instead of the loud Hawaiian shirt Big F is rocking, he's in a ballet leotard for this part of the performance. The Giants release Nico since he wasn't dying in a very entertaining way, and instead of starting a fight, they explain to the other demigods what their roles are going to be in this huge tacky party they thro- throw together. Ephialtus explains that they're going to be giving the Roman people all the bread and circuses they want, because during the mayhem he's going to be distributing... That's weird, the brand of bread that he's handing out has been redacted from my notes... <laughs> anyway, Ephialtus also lets slip that the celebration will last for a full month, up until the day that Gaia is awakened, which is news to the rest of the characters. They decide that they're done fucking around with this, and charge the giants. Chapter 46, Percy. All hell breaks loose as the giants start releasing wild animals, setting off special effects, and dumping props and monsters everywhere. Percy manages to take control of a fireworks launcher, which is literally just made of duct tape together rocket launchers, and demolishes half the room, accidentally injuring Piper in the process. While running to help her, Jason redirects Otis's spear into Ephialtus, briefly incapacitating him, before a final rocket blows several tons of rubble onto Otis's head, which takes him down too. The demigods regroup, and Percy manages to slice up the control panel that Ephialtus was going to use to rain death and destruction on Rome. Unfortunately, Ephialtus recovers in time to hit Percy while he's distracted, cracking his ribs and leaving him down for the count. Percy and Jason square up for what they think is going to be a desperate last stand, since they don't have a god on their side, when who should finally show up but Barkus, descending into the scene with purple fire flickering in his eyes. Chapter 47, Percy. Unfortunately, Barkus isn't here to help, yet. The sacrifice at sea got his attention, and now Percy and Jason must sufficiently entertain him to earn his assistance. Bacchus transports everyone to the Colosseum, magically renovating it and filling the stands with raucous lares, while he sits in the Emperor's box and watches the combat. He does at least get Nico and Piper out of the way by stashing them in the box, since neither are in any condition to fight. Chapter 48, Percy. Percy gets back into the fight, pretty much entirely fueled by pure rage at Bacchus for treating this like a game. The gods have fucked with him plenty, but this is over the line, even for them, and Percy genuinely has a moment where he stops and wonders if maybe Luke actually had a point about how the gods suck and need to be removed. Unfortunately, he has a battle to win before he can become any more based. He and Jason change tactics, working together to rush Otis and get him out of the way so they can focus down Ephialtis, rather than fighting separately, and combining their powers to devastating effect. Unfortunately, it's not enough, and the giants finally corner the pair of them. However, just as they're about to strike the killing blow, the Argo too descends into the Colosseum, crewed by Hazel, Leo, Frank, and Coach Hedge. They blast the giants with the ship's ballista, 
and Bacchus decides that he's seen enough cool shit that he's willing to step in and finish the job, killing both giants. He tells Percy that if he wants to save Annabeth, there's a specific parking lot he needs to blast through, and then vanishes. The gang all get on the Argo, and Leo explains that his team got out of the underground lab by having Hazel pick out a spot which Leo could drill through with some shit he found in the lab, which created a small tunnel that Frank could fit inside in weasel mode so that he could go to Coach Hedge for help. Once in the air, Nico starts explaining himself. He apologises to Percy for lying to him at the start of Son of Neptune, saying that Hades told him to keep his mouth shut about the dual camps thing. Nico was only let into that secret so that he'd be prepared to run support for the quest later when they go to close the doors of death. Apparently, when he was in the underworld trying to find and close them himself, he ended up getting trapped in Tartarus. He tells the other kids that they need to go to Greece to a temple called the House of Hades buried beneath Epirus, which will get them to the mortal side of the doors of death. However, to close them, they need another team of seven demigods fighting on the underworld side, which, given that Nico was almost driven insane by his quest to find them, seems unlikely. The kids decide that this is a problem for the next book, and instead turn their attention to finding Annabeth, as the Argo arrives over the parking lot they need to blow up. Percy gives Coach Hedge the, the order to blow it open with the ballista. So, Jacqueline, what do you think of these chapters? Okay, the final Percy chapters, I have to say, I started these off, and I was ready to throw this book in the garbage. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. But by the end, I was completely won over. I, I fucking love these. Yeah, I, th- I, w- I was worried for a while that this book was going to do a bit of a Son of Neptune and have like a really promising start and fuck it up near the end. Uh, but these, these are some of my favorite chapters that we've had in a while. This feels like goofy action mode Percy Jackson, kind of firing on all cylinders to me. It feels like evolved goofy action Percy Jackson mode. Oh yeah? This feels like Rick Riordan finally understands how to make an interesting fight scene. <laughs> like, he... <laughs> he's rediscovered new ways to do that that in like ways that he just hasn't gotten in books and books yeah no i definitely agree like the the setup for this fight with like the room full of like wild animals and caged monsters and shit means that like instead of the fight just being like three people gang up on a big guy it's like constantly escalating and changing and shifting as percy like has to deal with problem after problem and it's a lot more engaging to read yeah, on that like on that level, that's incredibly true, and it also works as a larger thing of like the stakes. There are more stakes than just like you have to kill the giants. There is also mm. like a, this different activity over here, which is you have to stop them from releasing their traps at various times, and that that works so well because we rarely get these interact like we always harp on this we rarely get these interactions between like the the mortal world and the godly world and this is a prime like oh we have to stop the threat to the mortals yeah exactly this is yeah i mean you're just exactly right that's it's something that we've been craving for a couple of books now as the setting is kind of like kind of disappeared into itself and become much more internal so it's it's nice to get a little bit of that interplay again yeah i i want to clarify why i said that i was like ready to throw this book in the garbage i i have a feeling i know what it is but hit me with it the beginning of chapter 45 when otis comes in with the ballerina outfit yeah uh and and Percy is like, wow, I can see his whole balls and taint. Just... <laughs> it, it... He does more or less say that, doesn't he? He does. I, I felt in that moment, I'm being very genuine here. I felt personally humiliated to have to like the fact that I do a podcast about this series. <laughs> I, you're, like, the entire... you're like, oh shit, this is a baby book. This is a dumb book for babies. Why am I talking about this? Yeah, not only that, but I was like, wow, this is the imagination of Rick Riordan that we've, got, <laughs> that we've had to explore. Like, this is what it all comes to. Is, oh, like, uh, but This was your pretty... personal D-squad. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's exactly right. I, But it pretty much immediately got me back by making all the magician bullshit set up worth it by revealing mm. that they've been creating like that they've been turning Rome into one giant arena that's fucking cool it, yeah they have this like huge underground cavern that runs under most of the city which is like the the behind the scenes for the 
for like all of Rome, which is just a very cool concept. And again, used really well in the fight. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And after that, like the the bread and circuses line they harp they they do at the be- at the beginning, especially <laughs> especially when <laughs> I, I I thought it was grown worthy when when the popped up is what I'll say. <laughs> I I read that and it was like being shot in the chest. You can't write that into a book anymore. <laughs> In in Rick Riordan's defense, um, the weird deviant art guy uh, wouldn't become like a known phenomenon for like four years after this was published. I, this isn't his fault. I guess that's true. I guess I, so. Right. I, I did wonder if he knew for for a moment because I was like, well, the redacted bread is showing up in a context where it's like a lot of a lot of that art was really weird and was like. Um, like, oh, you got to be mowing down a forest while getting all this bread. And I was like, this is also in a very destructive context because they're about to blow up Rome while handing out all of this bread. Yeah. So I, yeah, I had that's... to look it up and check that Rick Ryden wasn't deliberately referencing this. I'm very glad that he wasn't because that would that would be an awful little thing to do on his part. Knowing uh, knowing that Rick Riordan knew of Merlogic One would be just it would take a couple of years of my life. Uh huh. <laughs> but it's weird how I even turn around on the mm, bread because <laughs> when Percy is fucking fighting the Hydra and he throws it at the and he throws it and like it it sops up all the poison. Yeah, it like spits acid into it and it just gets a bunch of melted acid bread in its face. I. That's like good. That's good stuff. That's clever. I got I got a, f- a face full of acid bread reading that bit though. <laughs> yeah. I just love. I also love just how, kind of going back to what you're saying about this being like a different kind of fight scene. I also just love how different Ephialis and Eph- and Otis are compared to the other giants. Yeah. Because like they were just big shouty guys who would say, "I am going to kill you," and they get beaten up. Uh, and these two are like fucking Metaton from Undertale. They are much yes. more interested in putting on a good show than in having like an actual proper fight. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I, I have a theory about why this is. Uh-huh. I think it's because the ones we've met so far are like, haven't we met the like, we've met the anti-Poseidon, the anti-Hades, and the anti-Zeus, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. Oh, and the anti-Athena. Yes, you're right. I think maybe the big ones are just boring. <laughs> right, and you think that the the more small the more niche and fucked up the gods get, the more niche and fucked up their characters will be. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> right. Like I they twist the anti-Dionysus really well here. Um because Aphelteus is really the one who's like characterized. Otis isn't as much. I don't even know if he is like an anti whatever. The fact that we get to see this twisted version of what Dionysus could be, in a way it pairs, it kind of pairs with the way that the Romans, like, the Roman versions are working. We're seeing their their aspects differently. Now we're seeing, like, their, not elements, this isn't, like, Avatar the Last Airbender, but, like, their <laughs> affinities, their, 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 uh, what's the word? I don't the know. Stuff their domain we're seeing their yeah. domain twisted yeah i can definitely see that i i wish that had been done in more cases than just these two but yeah this is a, an example of doing that really well still can't believe that porphyrius's power was just like i i turn water into poisonous sludge we talked about D a lot in that book for some reason that's like a really bad D spell <laughs> <laughs> God, I mean th- this. I mean, this room feels more like something out of a video game than something out of a tabletop RPG because you could like Percy, Piper, and Jason are like standing in the door, being like, "How far do we walk in before the cutscene triggers and the giants come in?" <laughs> That's really true. Yeah, <laughs> it's not. There are things, other things that make it feel like a video game too, like Percy being like, oh yes, my ADHD makes me perfect for like being able to like figure out that there are a bunch of interactables and not have to immediately <laughs> run over to them. Like shit, dude, I guess it's different for everyone, but that, that would just overwhelm me. True, true. <laughs> we, I, we do get another Percy censorship moment here. Um, we get, but, I, in this chapter or are you talking about later? 
Uh, chapter 45. Oh, we get a few in that case. The the one that I clocked was Percy saying, I'm getting tired of this guy's shirt. Uh, which, oh. Which, I didn't even catch which, that. Yeah, that that reads to me as big, like, Rick Riordan wanted Percy to end the chapter saying, I'm tired of this guy's shit. That, <laughs> uh, like had to set it up so he gave him a weird shirt too i mean i guess it makes sense because dionysus also wears weird hawaiian shirts it's true he doesn't percy has like a negative association with those which which percy censors did you catch uh i picked in um i think it's chapter 48 um he calls bacchus a wine breath little and then someone cuts across him oh yeah yeah <laughs> percy is fucking pissed in these chapters he is, he's that image of, like, the hamster on the sofa with the caption, like, I can't take it anymore, I'm at my fucking limit. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly <laughs> right. Hmm. What? Oh, man. Way to make the message literal, right? Putting them in a fucking, or having Bacchus put them in a fucking coliseum. It's, it's so good. It's the most blatant, like, literalization we've seen of like the shit that Dionysus was saying to Percy at the end of Last Olympian and the stuff that Luke was saying the whole fucking time yeah about like yeah the the gods just literally sit back and watch us reenact past glories um for their entertainment and benefit uh while putting us in horrific danger I yeah I was like okay so I was cheering I in my my notes for when Dionysus shows up is oh yes 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 Dionysus <laughs> yes yes what a good way to end a chapter and then my 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 first note for chapter forty seven was Bacchus is such a bitch I love it uh, <laughs> and there is, oh my god he says fucking entertain me heroes of Olympus give me a reason to do more being a god has its privileges like fuck that is that that this says it all this rick riordan understands his own theme which like we i'm i'm glad for these are these are not good people (laughs) these are not like good beings yeah like the i feel like especially with some of the new roman versions the portrayal of a lot of the gods has kind of softened over time uh but like Barker slash Mr. D is the one that Rick has always seemed very comfortable portraying as a complete piece of shit. Uh, and it's just, it's great whenever he's around. I like that. And I like that it's Dionysus too. I like that it's Bacchus because mm-hmm. like you say, he has been portrayed as like a just complete piece of shit, but in that way that like the lovable side character is right. Like he's, he's an asshole but he's the asshole who everyone is like oh mr d he's our favorite character we do that right this is true except for bringing it all the way back to this being sea of monsters 3 <laughs> the only time we get him not doing that is when he is like being genuinely horrible and negligent in sea of monsters yeah yeah this true. is almost like this is a that almost feels like unintentional foreshadowing for this it does right because i think using that character who people have like grown an affection for yeah definitely and being like even this guy doesn't give a fuck like he can't he can care like he will cry when his kids die uh but this is part of him he is one of these like of these uncaring cosmic parasites (laughs) he is part of the fucking cosmological mafia so yes (laughs) <laughs> yeah, there's never that comparison will never leave my brain. It's so good. I there's so many so many just like great lines in these last couple of chapters. This one of Percy was almost the same age now as Luke had been then. He could understand how Luke had become so spiteful. What hits about it is the fact that Percy more than anything doesn't want to be Luke, right? Yeah, exactly. And he, yet he comes at this pivotal moment in his his final chapter in the book. He says, oh, yeah, I get I get it. I get it. Right. He, he says, oh, fuck. The major antagonist of the last series might have had a point, <laughs> which feels huge. Yeah, that's major. I just, and it also like the, the way that it's framed is like he has this thought and then he's like, but there's no time to examine this further. I got to fight the giants. And this has happened so many times now, and, like, Percy comes to such a, like, genuinely angry conclusion here that I'm starting to wonder if that continually cropping up in this book is on purpose. I, I think, I think to an extent, 
I think there are certain aspects that I don't really want to give required in the benefit of the doubt about. Uh-huh. Like, uh, like people, like I think there was a bit where it was like, hmm, maybe racism does exist. Uh, well, do want like and is in history. Well, do want to think about that too long. That's true. I, I, d- I, d- I, I desperately want to believe that um, he Rick Ryden wants to say something about like you know systems of power manufacturing crises to like divert attention away from their abuses. I think there might be something there, to be honest. What the big revelation that Percy has, and I, the one that really makes me like think that that could be true, is the things per- Percy specifically calls on isn't that the gods are like he's not like oh they're such assholes because he's known they're assholes, right? Yeah. But I think up until this point, there has been this underlying idea that the gods must be still like the good ones, right? Mm-hmm. Even if they're assholes, they're still the good ones. They're necessary assholes. Yes. Um, And the realization Percy comes to here is that they're basically the exact same thing as, like, Gaia or the Giants or the Titans. Mm -hmm. The only difference is that they are the assholes who aren't going to destroy the world if they're not stopped. Yeah. I think he literally says, like, just because they're the lesser evil doesn't make them not evil. (laughs) Yeah. He, He says that the gods are evil. That's that's really cool right i don't know i'm i'm like fangirling here but i just really like that percy is like these guys are fucked the system (laughs) is fucked percy jackson bring down capitalism now percy jackson is becoming more based every book it's true oh also uh, slightly related just while we're on barkus uh i just want to point out a really cool thing uh, that I think is cool specifically because Rekka didn't point it out in the book. Okay. The way that um, Barkus enters the scene, where he's like, you know, they're in this, like, um, performance area with the giants and stuff, uh, and then it seems like the conflict has no way of being resolved properly, uh, and then a god gets lowered in on a little crane. Uh-huh, uh-huh. They, it's, it is, it's literally a fucking deus ex machina. That's really funny. I didn't think about that at all. It's so, it's so good, and I love that it's just like left there for the readers who maybe catch, but like it's not lingered on. Yes, yeah. <laughs> he loves his little like God in the Machine moments, right? He does. Also, I love that it kind of turns out to not be a Deus Ex Machina because he's an asshole and he doesn't help. Yes. <laughs> you know who does help Percy though? Coach Hedge. Coach Hedge, yes, and I, I'm going to get to that. But Jason. Fuck J- yeah. Jason and Percy here, they are... Okay, I joked about it being Yowie Friday last time we recorded, right? You did. But I'm being so, so serious when I say that there is so much heart being put into this relationship. I was I was reading this and being like... I wonder what the like the Percy Jason shipping scene is like because if this scene didn't make it blow up, I'll be genuinely surprised. Percy expresses affection in some very specific ways. We get a kind of affection that we rarely get from Percy here. I think. Mm-hmm. I, I'll, I'll read this line. Jason understood immediately. He laughed, and Percy felt a spark of friendship. This guy thought the same way he did about a lot of things. That's. I, that, reading that makes me smile like Percy Hell yeah. Percy has found a, a true friend like that that's not some okay Grover right but, eh. per, but, but speaking <laughs> of Grover and the way that he was presented in like the first few books yeah yeah they didn't have that specific kind of relationship Percy and Grover were best friends as soon as the book starts we don't see yeah. them like grow into a friendship in this way. We don't we don't see the beginnings of it. Yeah, definitely. That is is a relationship marked a lot more by like hidden information than this one is, I guess. Like Grover kind of went out of his way to become Percy's friend. Yeah, it was like it was part of his job. Yeah, yeah. And and the way that Jason and Percy's relationship develops here really it feels very genuine and I I, I appreciate that. I'm also, like, I'm, I'm excited to see where Jason is at after these chapters, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Because when when um, he was talking to Barkus back in, like, the Kansas chapters, he was very polite, he was very deferential. The way he is to most of the gods, he's, like, generally very, like, deferential to them because of his whole, like, honor and duty-bound thing. 
by the end of these chapters, he is like visibly furious with Dionysus. He is like shouting insults at him. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, this this seems to have been a big moment for how Percy views the gods. I'm kind of curious to see if it's all to Jason's perception at all. It's been a little bit since The Lost Hero. I don't know if we have as good a picture on what Jason thinks about the gods. Mm-hmm. Beyond, like, I, I think he has some general frustrations. I guess my I guess my thing is that, like, when they saw Barkas before, Percy was the one saying a bunch of impertinent shit, and Jason was generally trying to smooth it over. Yeah, that's true. So this is a development. Uh, mm-hmm. like they they have they've synchronized a bit on that. I I I hope we get like Jason chapters next time. I'm very interested in that. God, I wouldn't have imagined saying that uh, like halfway through Lost Hero. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> I mean, by the end of Lost Hero, sure, we were fucking. Yeah, Jason was our best boy in the world. I mean, Leo was, but you know what I mean. It was Leo. But Jason was our second best character. Um, Jason was the third best hero in the, lo- in the last <laughs> hero. And uh, Annabeth was in it for quite a bit, so maybe fourth. Yeah, she wasn't in it for that long, though. But it is Annabeth. Yeah, it is. Okay, Jason was my fourth favorite. Oh, okay, well, there was there was Kyanie, and she was pretty, like, cool, I guess. Uh... Jason was God in poor Jason. Jason was in I what I'm saying is that we grew to like Jason a lot more than we expected. He was one of the characters of all time. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and, man, genuine friendship. That's that's like the big takeaway from a lot of it is when when okay. Oh man, when Leo comes in, is it too soon to jump there? Not at all. Let's go. When Leo, Coach Hedge, Frank, and Hazel come to save the day, which was actually foreshadowed like two chapters ago um, by Percy being like, the last time he'd faced a Hydra, he'd been saved by a battleship with bronze cannons that blasted the monster to pieces. That strategy couldn't help him now. Or could it? Uh, they, they came in yeah, a little bit Yeah, that's a very late. nice little bit of foreshadowing. Yeah, they, they came in a little bit late, but <laughs> the off-screen... I was not expecting to see them back so soon. I was imagining they'd come in, like, in the final Annabeth chapters. Yeah, I, I was thinking they'd be, like, like Percy, Jason, and Pipe would be, like, going through the tunnels following Annabeth's trail, and, like, the other group would, like, tunnel through a wall or something next to them. Yeah, yeah. But instead we get maybe my favorite sentence in the entire book, uh, <laughs> which is... Which is... I was the weasel, Frank said glumly. I underlined that. <laughs> Poor Frank. Poor fucking Frank. But he, he may have beca- had to become a weasel, but you know what he gained? What did he gain? A fan. He gained a fan. <laughs> uh, he did gain a fan. Leo is a is maybe the number one Frank fan all of a sudden. <laughs> Leo Leo's new favorite guy is Frank for some reason. Because, like, when they're trying to, like, find the parking lot that they need to blow up, uh, Leo is, like, struggling with Google Maps or something, and then Frank is like, oh yeah, a Chinese tourist pinged this place and I can read the name of it. Uh, and Leo is, like, beaming around the Argo, being like, look, he can read Chinese, isn't he so cool? Frank is so cool, I love Frank. <laughs> it's really good. I, <laughs> I, I don't really know why it happened, but it just, it, it's good, it makes me happy. I... Th- Maybe it's just, you know, Leo kind of finally figured out where um, Frank fits into Leo world. Yeah. Uh, and that is a weasel he can shove into a narrow passage. Frank is a, a usable tool now, and <laughs> what, what what's better than a usable tool? Nothing, nothing in the world, says Leo Valdez. <laughs> if I had a nickel for every um, piece of media that I've consumed which features an underground fight in Rome where um, one of the heroes is knocked down for the count uh, and is, like, trying to crawl away to safety behind the bad guys and, like, plays dead whenever they look over their shoulder at him. I'd have two nickels, which is a lot, but it's weird that it's happened twice. Now, wait a second. What are you talking about? <laughs> uh, I'm talking about um, when Nico is uh, released from the jar and is, like, trying to crawl to safety. Uh-huh. Uh, reminding me of Joseph Joestar doing the same in JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. He does do that, doesn't he? 
R- wait, we're coming full circle. We're going back to fucking episode one. Rick <laughs> Riordan is a fan. It, it it must be. Why else would anyone say anything in Italy? It's a very unpopular country. <laughs> it's true. No, no, you know what I mean. Like Rick Riordan. Yeah. He... No, I mean it's probably not true. But I just what what was our fucking episode one theory that like Araki was a son of Poseidon? So some bullshit like that. Yeah. It's been literal years. Oh god, it has. And also, I guess, I guess, almost a hundred episodes later, uh, we should acknowledge what a bunch of people DM'd us after that episode, which is that we uh, went through the entire thing without making a joke about Jotaro, the marine biologist, being a son of Poseidon. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I. There we go. We got to it ninety-seven episodes later. Hope you're all happy. <laughs> Fuck! Is this episode ninety-nine? Uh, wait, hang on. Oh, Christ, it is. Holy shit, these Annabeth chapters are chonky, then. Yeah, yeah, that's that's all that's left. Yeah, oh, goddamn, yeah, episode 99. Uh, well, everyone, stay tuned for next time, I guess. But we're not over, we're not done yet, we're not done yet. Sorry, I just got distracted. <laughs> Nico's, Nico's having a weird day. He's having a real, he's had a weird couple weeks, it sounded like. He went into Tartarus. And then fell into a black hole, then went insane, and then he was in a jar. Yeah. It's... This is something we don't see a lot. This is like a a trope, I guess, we don't see a lot in uh, Rick Riordan's work. Which is like, the vast unknowable horror. Mm Mm-hmm. That that's not something like we we've talked about like sort of the cosmicness of things before, but we've never just gotten that idea of like the unspoken i saw something so terrible and i will never speak it of it again that that nico experienced yeah like usually like pretty much everywhere you can go in every monster you can encounter in percy jackson is just like a, a thing that will come up but it seems like tartarus is one of those things where it's like yeah this place was so horrible that we are not even going to address anything that happened down there and this was where the olympians kept chronos yes <laughs> I I was really distracted by our good favorite boy Nico being back. But can we talk about how maybe putting people in like putting all the monsters and all the all the people you defeated into the eternal torture scared pit uh is maybe bad for like recidivism? It's maybe bad. It maybe means that when they come back to life they're going to have some resentment and they're going to want to kill you. <laughs> It's it's very possible that maybe the monsters are just going to get madder and madder and keep trying because they they do come back. That's literally a thing. They they come back. Yep. All all monsters, we know from like book 1 that monsters come back when they die eventually, and we learn from this book that all monsters go to Tartarus. So that it just seems like a little bit of a bad formula. It's yeah. It seems like a kind of fucked up thing to do to someone, but we but we need to reestablish Thanatos's border control to keep them there. Oh, God. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is what's happening, right? We've imagined Thanatos as like the border patrol agent. Now we have to imagine Thanatos as like he is the prison guard. He is the mm-hmm. prison walls. Um, the the quest that these guys are the the these guys the quest that the seven heroes are on is to like restore the like inter the infallibility of this prison. It sure is, and I can kind of see why Percy's getting sick of that. You're right, right, because they're not just going along happily without questioning it at all, even though they're yeah. not putting it in those terms. Everyone is kind of at the very least. Percy even starts off these chapters just sick and fucking tired of going on quests like he he's 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 a step beyond his normal like snark and he is just like i don't want to do this shit anymore let me let me find it seriously these monsters and gods were thousands of years old couldn't they take a few decades off and let percy live his life apparently not apparently not he is just he's he's resigned to this shit yeah poor percy jackson I kind of get the feeling that if Annabeth wasn't being trapped by Arachne, he would probably just, like, go home. That's that's the vibe I get, too. <laughs> that's pretty much all all his motivation by the end of this. And that's... 
that's the final note we get Percy on in these, right? We get Percy mm-hmm. will, he says, let's destroy that building. And it's, uh, he was like, let's destroy the parking lot, the public parking lot of this building to get in, <laughs> in there. That's not usually a Percy move, I don't think. He is being maybe a little more destructive and angry than usual. So I, I, I do, I do appreciate that he has, he has this drive. He would destroy anything to get to Annabeth, probably. Probably. We, I mean, we know he's been tempted by this before, right? He has been tempted by the idea of just like, let's leave. Let's stop thinking about it. That's one of Percy's major, it's not one of his flaws because he always beats it, but it is his major like recurring, um, temptation, I guess. Mm hmm. Yeah, whether it's, like, staying with Calypso on the island or just, like, chilling in the Lotus Hotel, stuff like that. Definitely. I mean, this series loves this series loves to offer characters a, a life where they don't have to think about the world's problems. And it also loves to make them eat shit and make them ultimately not choose that. Yeah. <laughs> Although, you know, sometimes sometimes you can find friends in unusual places when you do that. Oh, yeah? Like, per- Percy doesn't just make friends with Jason in this chapter. I feel like he also makes friends with um, Ephialtis. Uh-huh. Uh, when they get transferred to the Colosseum by Marcus, and Percy and Ephialtis both stop fighting and start shouting at Dion- and Dionysus for being such an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I just, like, they're both, they're both just stood yelling up at the Emperor's box and calling him a coward. I mean, they're in... They're being put on the same position, right? It's interesting because yeah. it it kind of makes it seem like the gods as a whole don't necessarily view the giants and the demigods much differently than each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I guess that makes sense. In in the, the gods' heads, the giants are kind of a demigod problem. True. Right. Like, they might... They are an annoying thing that the demigods will ask them for help with. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's easy to just come in and get rid of them. You know, Bacchus racks up two giant kills and he barely had to lift a finger. Never mind that Jason and Percy had worn them all the way down before he struck the final blow. God. And they wore them down, I have to say. <laughs> like, um, some of the... We, we talked about the inventiveness of the of the fighting as in the first few chapters. I think mm-hmm. this uh, gladiator fight is even better than that specifically the the way that rick riordan writes uh sort of jason and percy's combo fighting like their teamwork yeah. is it's everything that i think we wanted for when we heard the brief descriptions of them like summoning storms together yeah it really feels like they are they are fighting in sync with like um the way that the percy like jason fucking vaporizes otis they um put his dust into like the the big the big lake that had been put there, because like a coliseum would sometimes have a lake to do like boat battles in. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And Percy just keeps like swirling it around and around to stop him from reforming, while per- while Jason occasionally hits it with lightning just to make absolutely sure he stays down. Yeah. It's just it's extremely good teamwork. It's not just that too. It's how he describes them moving around each other, like they're just like the ways they step, the ways they run it's evocative i i I do like Mm -hmm. the the churning pool that they something is so i percy usually is pretty like he uses water but he like hits people with it or he pulls them under you you don't often see him doing what he does here which is like tearing them apart in water Mm mm-hmm and that's that's pretty fucking terrifying i have to say percy like because I think the description is that, like, everything from his arms under looks like a massive oatmeal. Yeah, he's, like, li- literally being ripped down to his base particles. And that, I guess he probably got that idea from the the, the little river in uh, New Rome. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the one that stole his fucking invulnerability, which probably would have made this fight a lot easier. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Fuck you, Juno. I feel like... I have Okay. Let's take a quick survey over this this book. Has there been a time where Percy being injured was like a big thing that would have mattered? Uh I guess there was a part where Did he almost... also Go ahead. Did he also get a head injury when um uh Jason 
when he and Jason were fighting, or was it just Jason that smacked his head? I th- I think it was just Jason. I mean, Jason also is going off. I guess that's one there. Like, you want Percy to be in danger there for real. But mm-hmm. also, like, Jason could just, like, maybe Jason learns about his weak spot earlier or something like that, you know? Yeah. That would be... I don't think he. I. I really. That's. That's gonna. That's one of my big things. I don't think person needed to lose his invulnerability necessarily. Yeah, I think you could because he's still in danger. Yeah. And I. I like. I like the idea that Percy is like a character who, you know, he. He loves his friends. He, he mostly fights for his friends rather than like the Olympians and stuff like that. And the the only way to kill him is to betray him by stabbing him in the back. Yeah. Like that felt like a great setup that never ended up really getting used. True. But then I guess it would be that you'd have to kill Percy. <laughs> it's true, yes. But in a way that's kind of... Percy getting immortality... Not immortality, but invulnerability is kind of a manifestation of just, like, his role in the plot. Percy Jackson mm-hmm. is the titular character of the first five books. He's probably never going to die. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. You may as well give him the cool invulnerability. I, I think he deserves <laughs> it. So that he can have a cool fight with Hyperion or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, I just, I think it's interesting that, like, the setup with Nico was apparently the, like, Hades told him about the two camps so that he would be, like, in a position to support the rest of the Seven. Which, like, feels kind of weird to me because a lot of the, the other Olympians seem to be, like, basically unconvinced by Hera's plan right up until the shit hit the fan properly. Yeah. So, I don't know, I find it, I find it weird and interesting in a good way that Hades was apparently much more on board with it. Do we think that follows with his characterization from the previous books? I think it does. I think I think you could make the argument that it could be an extension of like cuz Nico and him showed up to kind of charge in and save the day at the end of Last Olympian. And I wonder if this is maybe Hades trying to get ahead of that again and be like, "Aha, yes, I'm the one saving the day." I I think so. Like he is he's very prideful as are all the gods. But he can sometimes have a good head on his shoulders that also wants the credit for everything. Yeah, I think fundamentally, like, because of his role ruling the underworld, he's way more of, like, an administrator than the other gods, who basically seem to just sit on their asses on Olympus all day. Yeah. So I can I can see him just being, like, more willing to... more willing to notice a threat and, like, be ready to fight it. Because also that wasn't his problem with the Titans. A lot of the gods didn't take the Titans seriously. Hades did. He just thought that he could use that crisis to his advantage. Yes, yes. So yeah, I think this this definitely fits with him. I think it's it's just a nice detail. Is the, I mean, and that kind of makes sense with Nico's characterization too, because I I can see a world where if this didn't happen, he would have just never gone along with the quest, right? Mm-hmm. And that's that's incredibly fucked, but. <laughs> the description of how this happened just like it's a you you get that like oh shit why is this familiar feeling when you hear that he like got sucked into it like a black hole this is hearkening all the way back to the first book with uh percy like in his dreams getting sucked into tartarus or grover literally almost uh, being dragged in by the shoes yeah yeah i think at the time when i read that i assumed it was more of like the sheer power of chronos it could also be that. No, I'm, what I'm saying is it it's it kind of feels like a revelation. Oh, right, right. That that power was actually Tartarus itself. Oh yeah, yeah. I guess I had kind of filed that under like Chrono's powers in my head, but yeah, God Tartarus seems horrible. It does. And hey, you know what the next book is called? The next book, uh, let me let me check my notes here. Oh my god, it's called The House of Hades. Now wait a second, that's the thing they say in these chapters. <laughs> do we want to do a bit of theorizing about The House of Hades really quick? Let's go, let's do that. I know we sometimes we do that at the end of the book. We, ha- we still have a set of chapters left, but it seems to imply here that you they will need two teams working simultaneously. Uh, mm-hmm. One in Tartarus, one in Greece. If that's how it pans out, who could these teams be? I wonder if next book we're gonna get, we're gonna get them putting together like a fucking suicide squad of dead demigods. Oh shit, that's cool. They could get like um, 
Beckendorf and Silena Beauregard. Uh, who else? Ethan Nakamura. Luke. Yes. Yes. Wait, no, I want this now. I want Luke to be... the. I want Luke and Percy to talk about the fact that Percy is kind of like, maybe you were right. I... Please. <laughs> I'm... I... I don't think this is what's going to happen at all, but I really wish it would be what happens. <laughs> I think this is... Just like... Or even... It doesn't even have to be dead demigods. Just like, give me a ragtag team of minor characters from the... From these... Like, from the previous books. And... You can just say Clarice. You can just say that you want Team Clarice. I need <laughs> Team Clarice. I need her to be the leader. I need her to lead the charge. I don't care which side she goes to. I need her to lead fucking, I don't know, Butch. Drew. Drew. Maybe like one of, maybe like some Roman kids too. I need her to take, uh, oh fuck, what's... There's like there's so much shit happening in this book. I forgot that there was an entire like <laughs> Roman war camp heading for Camp Half Blood. Oh yeah, I, yeah. I guess we are gonna have to resolve that in the last four chapters. Unless it's like a save it for next book thing, I guess. I hope so because the the big camp battle they came back to at the end of Son of Neptune was kind of lame. Yeah, it was. We don't need to end every single book with one of those. Yeah, exactly. And yet, in my mind's eye. I'm picturing the first two chapters of this being Annabeth defeating Arachne in the last two, the the traditional setup, the traditional Rick Riordan setup of like the first of the, of the, what could be a really cool final battle being cut off too short for uh, yeah. something much less interesting. Let's hope not. I hope not. I think it's kind of weird that in these books, it's still 2011. How so? As in, how is it still 2011 or how I think it's weird? No, why do you think it's weird? <laughs> I don't know, there's just like, it's been like two years since The Lost Hero at this point, and it's still like the same year. Because <laughs> this picks up straight off the back of um, Son of Neptune. Yeah, I guess that's that's just like a few months, though. That's just a few months difference. No, it's not. It's literally like 30 seconds. Wait, what do you mean? Oh, wait, no, no. I'm sorry, you're right. <laughs> this, this book does not take place 30 seconds after the end of The Lost Hero. No, no, it does not. That would be funny. Uh, mainly, I just think that because it's still 2011 in-universe, uh, we should extend our sincere condolences to Hazel and Nico for their loss. Uh, okay, I'm rocking my brain. I'm going to figure this out. <laughs> Are you saying this because they were big supporters of Mitt Romney? Uh, no. Okay, 2011, were they like... <sighs> Was Matt Smith the doctor yet in 2011? Yes. Why? <laughs> I was going to say maybe they were big David Tennant fans and like maybe uh, they were big Matt Smith fans and Matt Smith was about to stop being the doctor. Uh, I mean, he was, he was still the doctor in 2011. He was about to stop being a good doctor. That could be a, is that, is that why? Uh, no, I, I, my condolences are for the loss of their dear half brother, Osama bin Laden. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. Oh my God. I forgot. <laughs> Folks, we got him. <laughs> and by him, we mean Rick Riordan because yeah. he wrote that stupid bullshit into these books. Do you think Osama bin Laden played Mytho Magic too? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the Navy SEALs recovered a full set from his house. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> I think that might be it for us today. <laughs> Our intro and outro music is Super Mario Ocean by Space Pony. You can find that at OC Remix. Our cover art is by Vera at Innsmouth underscore in on Twitter. We are hosted by the Moonshot Podcast Network. Find them on twitter.com at moonshotpods. Uh, there is a new show coming to the moon. Well, there are a, a few new shows coming to the Moonshot Network, but one of those I, I want to shout out just just uh, got announced. The folks over at Kame House Party are joining us. They do an a improv Dragon Ball Z show. I've never listened to Dragon Ball Z. So is it, I feel like the, the optimal way to experience it would be to listen to some people improv about it. I think that's probably true. I, I would do that. <laughs> And if you want to find us, you can go to twitter.com slash unwisegirls, where we've got our links, our various social medias, our email, our Discord server, etc., etc. We also do things like visual companions for episodes, and we post about updates. 
Uh, if you want to support us, you can leave a five-star rating and review on your podcast app of choice. You can tell your friends about us. Or, for a little bit of monetary support, you can go to patreon.com slash unwisegirls, where, for just a dollar a month, you can get the Discord role of Camp Counselor. For three dollars a month, you can get the Discord role of Friend of Bacchus. He's he's in these chapters, and you don't really want him. For, <laughs> you probably don't actually want him for a friend, uh, <laughs> but you do want our bonus content. Uh, yep. Yeah, on the last bonus episode, uh, we got extremely robot-brained and talked for most of it about uh, Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam, and uh, uh, we went full spoilers on Witch from Mercury. Now that Jacqueline has finished it, that's exactly right. And for five dollars a month, you get the Discord role of. Venus was chosen, all of our bonus content, and a special thank you at the end of every episode. Speaking of which, this week we'd like to thank Danny, Tana, Mercy, Veronica, Friend, Bree, and Erica. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. And as we always say, at the end of every single episode. See you next week, Camp Half Blood. See you next week, Camp Half Blood. Bye. Bye. time on Dragon Ball Z. Turtle and I are going out to dinner. You two better behave while we're gone. And most importantly, no improv. If I hear any yes and, you're getting the back of this hand. Well, Vince, it looks like we've got the Kame house all to ourselves. Yeah, we do, Aaron, and you know what that means. It's time to throw a banger of a We're Kame House Party, the only improv comedy Dragon Ball podcast in the known universe. We're going through every iteration of Dragon Ball, episode by episode, and performing improvised scenes based on what we watched. And you don't have to be a Dragon Ball super fan to enjoy the podcast, because each week we do a one-minute roundup to catch everyone up so you can enjoy the latest and greatest episode. Yes, and... What the shell is going on? They're doing improv all over the Kame House. They even put on flannel shirts. We're Kame House Party, part of the Moonshot Network, with new episodes every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Don't close out a promo while I'm yelling at you. Finn.